to Hebrews chapter 2. Our text this morning will be verses 1 through 4. Hebrews is a notoriously difficult book to understand. And we come to the first of five of those reasons why this book is so difficult to understand, because we come to what is known as the warning passages. And these warning passages in the book of Hebrews are shocking. They're jarring. They set you on your back. They strike fear into your very soul, for they seem to be saying that you could lose your salvation. And in a sense, it is saying you could lose your salvation. I once heard one pastor say, I believe in the eternal security that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, but I take seriously the truth of the warning passages of Hebrews. There is a faith that one could have in which they profess the Lord Jesus Christ, in which they confess the Lord Jesus Christ, but they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's an outward confession, but there is not a corresponding inward reality. And so Hebrews confronts this that there are many that out there that will initially grab a hold of the faith and confess it, but are not truly in the Lord Jesus Christ. And before we can even look at these passages, we need to look at something that the Scripture teaches us about salvation. Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, He, that is Christ, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Christ is able to save, and if Christ saves, He in fact saves. We see this in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. That is those that have experienced the, experienced the new birth brought about by the Holy Spirit are in fact saved. And that is an insellable truth. It's, it's not something that could be assailed. So then brings the question... If these warning passages are here that warn us and jar us and shake us to the core, why do we have such passages if I can't lose my salvation? That's kind of like asking, why do I have to be obedient if I'm saved by grace? And I hope you know the answer to that. We're saved by grace. It's not by works, but we are not saved by grace so that we don't have to work. It is by God's empowering grace. It is through Christ that we work. This is to awaken us from a slumber. This is a warning to grab a hold of us by the, the coat collars and say, Wake up, Christian! Listen to what you have heard. And so, yes, 
I believe in the perseverance of the saints. I believe in eternal security. However you want to say it, if you are in Christ, you are in Christ, and that cannot ever be changed. But I also believe these warnings here uh, say, stop and take an examination right now. And look. I'd like to think of these as the parable of the sower that we see in Matthew chapter 13. In fact, would you turn there? Christ gives the parable of the sower. You're familiar. Some seeds fell along the path. Birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. Jesus explains this in Matthew 13, verse 24, where he says this, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a field... A man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat. So when the plants came up and bore again, bore grain, then the weeds also appeared. Jesus says in verse 18, he says, Hear the word of the kingdom. He who, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises, on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown Sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but cares of the world and the deceitfulness of the of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word, understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields. In one case, a hundredfold, and in another, sixty, and in another, thirty. The Lord Jesus very clearly teaches us. That one can hear the word, one can even receive that word, one can taste that word, but they have not, really, truly, that word has not taken root. And what's interesting about Matthew 13, Jesus says, these are those that receive the word and then they later fall away. But if you'll recall in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says there is a particular one that confesses all the way to the end. And then when they are before Christ, Christ says what to them? I never knew you. That's the one that, that has professed Christ and has, has gone along as a, as a good Christian, so to speak, and says, look at all the things I have done. I have professed Christ and I have, I have done these things. And it says, Lord, Lord, which is the establishment of a relationship. And Jesus says what to that one? Away from me. I never knew you. And so when we come to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, we have to understand with clearer passages of Scripture what it is that God is telling us. Because here we're given a heart check. We're warned here, do not drift, but pay attention. Martin Lloyd-Jones summarized it with this sentence. 
What a horrible thing it is to be inside of the haven only to drift past. That's our warning here. To be in sight of our security, our rock, our Lord Jesus Christ, and to just drift past Him. So hear the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Pay attention lest we drift. How could we neglect such a great salvation? And you look at verse 1 and it says, Therefore, and therefore is connecting us to the past, that which came before it. And I just want you to look at the very last word of your English Bible of chapter 1. And it's dealing with salvation. So the whole context of this is about salvation. You are to inherit this salvation. And that is that salvation we will inherit in that in time that we who are in Christ will inherit this salvation. So therefore, this is about salvation. Therefore, we must, and we must as a, a divine imperative. And what that means is this is a command from God. This is not an option. This is not a, a, a possibility of something we get to select if we want to. What we are told here is that because of this inheritance of salvation we are given in Christ, therefore we must, we must do something. Don't confuse that with the idea of works. Don't confuse that with there's something we contribute. We bring nothing but our sin. We come with the empty hands of faith clinging to the Lord Jesus Christ. But we are told here that we must do this. We must pay closer attention. What does that mean? It means to be alert. It means to hold firmly. It means to keep your eyes open. This is a command to action that you must respond to the gospel. That you must not just respond to the gospel initially, but it is a continual response throughout your life. You can think of the prayers of, Lord, save me, a sinner. But then, Lord, save me, a sinner. And the next morning you say, Lord, save me, a great sinner. This is not an initial paying attention. But this is our life. This is who we are in Christ as those that are fully dependent upon the great and rich mercies of the Lord to pay attention. 
One of the dangers of certain methods of evangelism that have been prominent the last 50, 60 years is that it promises eternal life with no expectation of of living that eternal life even now. Just repeat after me and say this prayer and you'll be saved and you, you never have to doubt that. And if you can't even say the prayer, just squeeze my hand and all, all, God will know that you've been saved. Uh, that, that is a false presentation. And many people are going to hell because they have received that. That is not the gospel. It's something that we do with continuance in our life. And so we are told not to drift past that, but rather to pay attention. And what does it mean to pay attention? John Owen says this. He says it's reverence, assent, and readiness to obey. By the way, that's in book 19, Joe. It is an assent and readiness and reverence to obey. It's what it means to pay attention. What is specifically? Pay attention to what we have heard. That is the contents of the gospel. That is the saving message of the gospel. That is the message of Jesus Christ that teaches us that we've been transformed. That teaches us that there has been a work of the Spirit within us that makes us a new creation where the old man is dead and now the new man is here. I have died to self. And there's a newness of life. It is to hang on to that which you have heard. That God sent His Son to pay the penalty for sinners such as I. God, His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Pay attention to that. It's that gospel message that transforms us. You know, we love Christ, don't we? You have a tender affection for Christ. If you're in Christ, you can't help it because you know what Christ did for you. There is an affection, there is a a love of Christ that that manifests itself. When we think about the power of the gospel, it's in this, that now I love Christ. I don't love Christ as I should. I don't love Christ as much as, as I would like to. But that's the power of the transformation of the gospel that we have to get a hold of and we have to get deep inside is that I went from hating Christ, being an enemy of Christ, nailing the very nails into his hand with my, my sin and my rebellion. And now, though, because of the transforming power of the gospel, I actually love Christ and I'm affectionate towards him. We who would just reject Him, love Him. That's the transforming power of the gospel. Something changes us that is outside of us. So pay attention to that message you've heard. Pay attention to what it is that you have heard. 
And let me just say something really quick. When we go into chapter 1, or when we were in chapter 1, I don't know how many sermons we were, we were there. We were there for several, though. And we dealt with the, the richness of who Christ is. And, and let me say, when you think about what it is that you have heard in the gospel message, and you think of Jesus, you must be thinking this, eternal God, robed in flesh. You must think immutable God who became man. You must be thinking prophet. You must be thinking priest. You must be thinking king. You must be thinking the sovereign one that rules over the world. And how is it that God in man can take place? We don't know, but you must take your mind there. There's no greater mystery to contemplate than that. This is the language of Scripture. This isn't esoteric theology. This is what God has given us. He's the radiance of the glory of God. When I think of Jesus, do I think that He is the exact nature and imprint of the Holy God, our triune God, that that Christ is the final revelation of God? Pay attention to what you've heard. Pay attention to what Scripture has told us. When I think of Christ, after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand. He's King. He is the majesty on high. He is the sovereign one over all of the universe. It's not just enough to think and sing, Jesus loves me. It's to know what and why Jesus loves me and who Jesus is that loves me. Pay attention to what you've heard. Pay attention to it. We've heard such a glorious truth of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. He is glorious. But what happens when we don't pay attention? Look what it says. Lest we drift away. That's to disbelieve to be washed away. It was used of a a ring slipping off of a finger and that you can't find it. This is not a warning against backsliding. What is backsliding? Backsliding is those, those periods of time where we are rebelling against Christ. This is not referring to backsliding, though I think we can make and we will make a lot of application to backsliding. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking, this is speaking of apostasy. It's to hear it and not continue. It's not speaking of a saving faith. It is speaking of an initial hollow faith and one walks away. I believe the temple was still standing at this time. And the recipients of this letter, you can in many ways see them standing in the shadow of the temple. And as they are being confronted with the trials of life and persecution of life, they're they're looking back to that temple. 
And they're saying there might be comfort there. They're in danger of drifting. What does it take to drift? Think about this for a second. You know what you do to drift? Nothing. That's what it takes to drift. You do nothing and you drift. I was given a kayak. It was so much fun to go in the kayak on the lake and I thought, I'm going to row across this lake as fast as I can. I'm not going to stop till I get to the other side. I'm in good shape. I can do that. And I started rowing, and then I thought, why am I doing this? And I just sat back, and you know what happened? Cock just kind of went wherever the wind was taking it. I didn't do anything. But that, just because I'm not doing anything doesn't mean something's not happening. And that's what we have to understand. You, even in the sanctified Christian life, by sanctified meaning you have been set apart in Christ, you are either in a state of drifting or you are in a state of rowing. And just because we're drifting, we can't be think, think because, because in drifting, I don't have to do anything to drift. I just have to sit there. We, don't have, we can't be fooled into thinking that it's not doing something. It is. It's actually pulling us away from Christ by doing nothing. That's the easiest thing you and I can do is do nothing. And we would be fooled to think that's not doing actually something. This is why I think so often you see that idea of being pulled and shifted according to the winds of change and shifting culture and how things pull us and drag us away and we begin to drift. You could apply this in so many ways. You could apply this in a salvific way in which the one who drifts away from Christ, but you could put this in your church that you do nothing and so you drift and you find yourself, you're past it. You can do this in relationships where you do nothing, you find that you have gone past it. You could do this in your job where you do nothing and you, you just have drifted away. It's so easy to drift. We're so prone to drift, but we're told to pay attention lest we drift away. We're given a reason why. 4, verse 2, 4, that connects us. This is because, you can think of the word for as because, because since, for since, the message declared by angels, that is because uh, the, the angels delivered as a mediator the law to Moses, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable because it was given to them by God, the law was given by God through the mediator of angels, and every transgression 
or disobedience received a just retribution. And this is stating something about the reliability of the message that was declared by angels. It was a reliable, it was a, is a true word of God because it was reliable, but because in these last days God has spoken by His Son... How much more reliable is his final and full revelation? The revelation given through the mediator of angels was reliable, but his final revelation is in his son. That means this revelation was partial, and the revelation in his son is final. It's complete. It's perfect. There's nothing we add to it. It's a complete revelation. And it's making an argument here. If the angelic message was binding and worthy of punish, that's the lesser, then how much greater is Christ's message? So in verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The answer is, you will not escape. That's the answer. That's the jarring, shocking, soul-searching reality that if you neglect this wonderful message of salvation, you shall not escape. If the lesser message of angels was binding, how much more the message of Christ? Again, when you think of Christ, you think eternal, immutable, Son, You think king, you think prophet, you think priest. You think God-man. Eternal God that takes on human flesh. His message. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? You know what it means to neglect something? Be unconcerned. Have no care for it. This is talking about your soul. This is speaking of your soul, to not have any concern over it. We can neglect things. And it's easy to neglect things. We neglect things all the time. You're usually simplistic things. We can neglect all sorts of things, be unconcerned with them, and have no care over them, and we watch them spoil because we've neglected. Jesus uses a similar word in Matthew 22, verse 5. He says, But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. This is speaking of the wedding feast. The king invites those to a wedding feast for his son, They received the invitation to come to the wedding as the king has given the wedding invitations and they paid no attention to it. What happens to them? Well, verse 7 tells us this, the king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. How shall we neglect such a great salvation? How could we be unconcerned for it? The fact that God tells us 
that this message was at first given by angels. We're told that in verse 2. And we saw the argument that Jesus was greater than the angels all throughout chapter 1. We're told that because it tells us what this congregation of Hebrews wanted to do. They wanted to go back to the Old Covenant. Again, they're living in the shadow of the temple, and they, they see that as a, as a way of comfort, and they wanted to live under that Old Covenant system. What are we told? They will not escape judgment. Those that reject this salvation will face judgment. So they hear it, it comes in to their ears, but they they never responded to it. They don't deal with it. And you you could imagine, why, why face persecution or alienation for this message of salvation in Christ? What they did not do is pay attention to who the Son of God is as eternal, immutable King that is sovereign over all things, that is our prophet, our priest, in whom God has spoken with a finality of revelation. That's what they did not think about. They did not pay attention. It was too hard to think through those things. They don't respond. And those who reject the free offer of the gospel today face eternal and final judgment. We're told later on in an example where Israel is used that they did not face, they did not escape, but faced exile. We see this in chapter 12 in one of those warning passages in verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At the time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Let me tell you, friends, the warning, do not neglect such a great salvation, is God's voice from heaven thundering and shaking our souls now, not to neglect a great salvation. That is the Word of God. The Word of God is to you, to me, and to all of us together. Do not drift. Do not neglect this, but rather pay attention. And unlike Israel that faced a temporary exile, we are looking at an eternal exile. That's the context. That's what we're dealing with. If the message was binding with angels, how much more is it in the Son And then we're given a witness in the latter half of verse 3. Witnesses are brought to the table to confirm the message that was spoken in the Son. It was declared, we read, at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard, 
While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So we are given a reason to pause, to consider this, and we're given a multitude of witnesses to the message that we heard of the Son that is eternal, that is immutable, that is the King, that is the prophet, uh, that is our priest of that message that we have heard. We're given a multitude of witnesses. It was first declared by the Lord, that is the Lord Christ himself has given us this message, what makes it authoritative. He gave us this message. He pours out his spirit into his disciples that they would record it down and it would be put into a book. It's called the Bible. It's in your lap. It's in your hands. And we are given that message right now that was given to us by the Lord. It was spoken first by him. Just pause on that for a second and think about the great mercy of our Lord, the great kindness that the Lord would speak this message of salvation to a group of sinners. What glorious truth that is that our Lord, He doesn't come down and say, let me give you more law that might make me happy. He comes down and gives us His grace. He gives us His mercy And he says, all all who are burdened, all who are heavy laden, just come on to me and I will give you rest. That's what our Lord came and did. What great mercy that our Lord speaks this to us. He doesn't come and throw more law, but he comes and condescends and reveals himself. How could we neglect such a merciful high priest? How could we drift away from this eternal, immutable prophet, priest, king, the Son of God, that is the exact imprint of his nature? How could we neglect him? How could we neglect Christ who would die for us? Who would be spit upon for us? Who who would take our sins upon us, upon himself? How could we drift away from one that's so lovely, that is so kind, that is so gentle, a bruised reed he will not break? How could we neglect, how could we drift past one? But there was witnesses to this message, and it was attested to us by those who heard. heard. And I, I think of the introduction to the first letter of John, where he says, "We, we have seen him, we have heard him, We have touched him with our own hands. We heard the message of life. They were eyewitnesses to it. And by the power of the Spirit, they wrote it down in a book called the Bible. You know, the early church did not just accept made up stories about Jesus, but they verified it by witnesses that saw it, that were there, that put their hands in the Lord Jesus Christ, that had breakfast with a resurrected Savior as a prelude of the great marriage supper that he will have with his bride. Not only did it get verified by witnesses, but there was confirmation through signs 
You see in verse 4, God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. And you, you think of that wonderful day of Pentecost where the Spirit comes down and enables them to speak in foreign languages that they had not heard. And the people came to the Lord Jesus Christ and you think of how God has bore witness by signs and wonders and miracles. You think of Moses is sent to Egypt and he says, how, how will they believe me? I'm just Moses. I'm just a shepherd. How are they going to believe me? And what does God say? You, you see that staff in your hand? Throw it on the ground and it becomes a snake. I would think that would be a little odd. And he says, pick it up again. And he picks it up. He says, I, I will come by and confirm your message by miracles. You think of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came in the power of the Spirit proclaiming truth and it was verified by signs, by miracles. In fact, we're even told in the Gospel of John, this is why the miracles of Christ were recorded in chapter 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, these are written. What's these? What's the antecedent? It's the signs that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Even the message of Christ was confirmed, but so was the message of the apostles, not only that day of Pentecost, but you see through the book of Acts so many times, just as a, as, as a sample, Acts chapter 2, verse 43, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. God confirmed this message with signs. That's the purpose of signs. And why don't we have signs today? Because the message has been completed. We don't need them anymore. We have them recorded by eyewitnesses, very public things that took place that could have been disputed. Even the Apostle Paul says that his ministry, his message was confirmed by signs. He says in Romans chapter 15, verse 19, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Ilkrium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. You see this threefold witness to the veracity, to the truth, to the trustworthiness of the gospel. So friends, with such a great witness from God himself, how could we, how could we neglect it? How could we drift past such a message? You know, I believe this passage, as I said, is about apostasy. That is a final rejection of Christ. I don't think it's about backsliding, but I, I think that it's, it's helpful for us to think about that idea of backsliding. Why do we neglect? Why do we drift? Sometimes because we're comfortable. We have peace. We have prosperity. We're told in Job chapter 21, 
verses 13 and 14. They spent their days in prosperity and in peace they go down to Sheol. What did they say in their peace and prosperity? Job tells us, they say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. In other words, peace, prosperity, wellness, all of those things can make us say, you know what? I really don't need to pay attention to God right now. And John Owen writes this, the warmth of prosperity breeds swarms of apostates as the heat of the sun does insects in the spring. In health and ease of life, we rarely consider our needs. And we sometimes say, and we trick ourselves, we lie to ourselves and say, I'll get to it later. This message I've heard, this message confirmed that was given to us by Christ, that was confirmed by the apostles, I'll get to it later. I don't want to deal with that in this stage of life right now. Things are busy. I don't have time for that. And what do we do? We hear this wonderful message of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we just drift past it. I'm too consumed with life right now. Things are good. So we neglect it. And then we find ourselves where we've gone past the safe harbor of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why else do we sometimes neglect it? Well, persecution comes. And Jesus tells us this, doesn't he? Matthew chapter 13 and verse 20. He says, As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no, he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. But the one who's truly in Christ, Jesus says this, Blessed are you, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. They are blessed. Whereas those that are not truly in Christ, as for what was sown on that rocky ground, when persecution arises they pull away. You know, we live in, and it was mentioned in Sunday school so well this morning, is that we live in a post-Christian society. And it's no longer advantageous to be associated with Christianity. There was, there was a time where actually there was an advantage in society as a whole uh, to be in church. But today it's no longer advantageous. Actually, being a Christian, having Christian values, actually brings scorn upon the Christian. Now, it's been turned now that to be a Christian is not to be loving, but you're actually hateful. You're intolerant. That's what we're told of the Christian world now. I was listening to this wonderful interview with a theologian, Aaron Wren, and he breaks up our current world in the United States like this. He, he breaks it up into three ways. There was a positive world, there was a neutral world, and now we live in the negative world. And he says the positive world was before 1994 and up until about 1994, where it was advantageous. And you can think of this. It would be, you belong to that church, that might determine whether you get a job in that period of time. That might help with your connections. 
But things changed around 1994. There was a, a moral slipping that began. We moved into what he calls the neutral world. And that, that's never to say that the world's ever neutral about us. I believe that's a myth. But, but just for the sake of argument, let's accept that. And he says that goes from about 1994 to 2014, where Christian values still were, were for the most part the norm. But about 2014, things changed. And just put on your history caps, it's not too long ago to 2014. 15 where Obergefell was ruled and the institution of marriage was redefined by government in such a way that no human society had ever defined marriage. And that changes us to the present day, which we call the negative world that we live in. And here's the reality. The church is on the decline and the church has been on the decline for some time. Mainline denominations are splintering. They are decreasing. It seems like charismatic churches have grown. Many of the independent Bible churches and have, have grown, but for the most part, it's on the decline in our culture, and, and we see it. Christianity is no longer viewed as something positive, but rather believing the Scripture is viewed as hateful. And when that comes to a society, and when that comes upon a group of people that profess Christ, but did not really know Christ, guess what they will do? Drift. They'll neglect that which they've heard. Now it's no longer comfortable to believe in Jesus. I'm not looked at positively for believing in Jesus now. Our culture has shifted, and that's a reality. This is what the Hebrews faced. This is what they were facing. Our brothers, our sisters, 2,000 years ago, were facing a situation different in many ways from ours, but they were facing a situation like we face Let me ask you, this morning, are you, are you drifting? Because you're either in a state of drifting or you're in a state of paying attention. Are you, are you drifting this morning? Take heed of the warning. Don't drift past the safe harbor of Christ. Do not take your eyes off of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a wonderful Savior. He's rich in mercy. He gives forgiveness freely. Consider what you've heard. Christ has preached here. The whole counsel of God is declared with authority here. So many come to church seeking something. They often hear something that fills a hole, but what's not exactly, actually, was not what was proclaimed. So often we come and we just want, just just tell me how to live through life, and we rarely think that this is that you actually need Christ to know how to live in this life, because you can't live with him. 
How do we deal with all of the things that we, we face in life? Well, I can tell you this very practically. You can't deal with it in a true fashion apart from Christ. And so if Christ is not the starting place and the solution to whatever maybe is you're facing today, anything else will be a band-aid. Pay attention to what we have heard. All of us stand before this word. So many will hear the word. They'll walk away and say, I'm a Christian. This is dangerous. Pay attention to the word. Do not drift. Do not neglect it. You must actually respond to what Christ has done once and for all. And then you spend the rest of your life by God's grace, not, a, not your own merit, by God's grace, continuing to pay attention. We have such a wonderful gospel given to us by our great triune God. It's confirmed by the apostles. It's a message revealed of God's love that he would send his son to die for a people such as us. Pay attention to that. Remind yourself of the gospel that in Christ we're forgiven. Be reminded that in Christ our sins are absolved. Pay attention to that. Every morning, wake up and remind yourself that in Christ you have security. Pay attention to this that Christ is our rock. Christ is our refuge. Our works and our toils have ended at the foot of the cross. Remind yourself of that, that take rest now in Christ. Rest in Him. Remind yourself, pay attention to that. Do not drift past the safe haven of Christ, our rock, our fortress, our security. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious truths of the gospel. We thank you that Jesus is the gospel and that in him we have salvation, we have forgiveness. By your grace, may we pay attention to the truths that your word gives us. By your grace, by your mercy, may we cling to the cross, always knowing that our weak is gr- our grip is weak, but Christ is all-powerful, and that He holds us. May we pay attention to this truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.